0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by two very special guests, Beezer Clarkson and Chris DuVos, the money behind the money, two people who don't really need that much of an introduction. Guys, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having us. This is
0: our first LP episode, so I'm hoping it can set the tone for many to come. First, how do you guys describe the work that, that you do? Chris, perhaps we can start with you.
1: Sure. Well, my name is Chris DuVos, and I run a investment vehicle. Called Ahoy Capital. Most of what we do is fund to funds, but we're also starting to do more and more direct investments, particularly in deep tech. Beezer, how do you
0: describe the work that you do?
2: Sure. So I'm Beezer Clarkson with Sapphire Ventures, and Sapphire is a two and a half billion investment firm that does two things both direct investments in growth stage companies. That's not the work that I do, but that's the majority of the money on our platform goes into. And I manage the side of the business that does investing in early stage venture funds, or I manage the side of the business that does the LP work.
0: Cool. Chris, you mentioned that you're starting to go direct a little bit. Talk more about that. How has that evolution progressed and and what does that mean for you? Sure.
1: So it's actually interesting because – my investors were the ones who kind of pounded on me until we started doing direct investments because they were you know, like, "You're here in Silicon Valley. You're kind of our bird dog, and uh, you must be in the way of you know a lot of interesting companies." And uh, and I said, "Yeah, actually, you know, we do kind of hear about a lot of things." And uh, and we have these great trusted relationships because part of the voodoo that I do is I like to put people in business, right? So I was the first investor in First Round Capital. We did the Friends and Family Fund back in 2006 before uh, I introduced Josh to, you know, Princeton and Yale and uh, Northwestern, Notre Dame, Virginia, and others. Um, you know, more recently, uh, I was a first investor in Data Collective. And, you know, with each one of these, what I, I said is, you know, Today I'm doing a favor for you and someday I'll ask (laughs) for a favor in return. And sure enough. When uh, did you
2: suddenly become much older?
1: Exactly. I'm actually channeling my dad channeling Vito Corleone. So, <laughs> you know, but anyhow, so it's, it's actually been awesome because being here and, and for a long time, uh, you know, I was, I was co-officing with one of my managers. And so getting, you know, kind of being, being up to speed, you know, I found myself in the way of, of a lot of interesting stuff. I will say though that there are mornings when I kind of, you know, kick myself because the very first real co-investment opportunity that I was like, Pitched actively was, uh, you know, my dear friends at first round, uh, and I were sitting around one day and it was when Uber was raising Uh, one of his earlier hounds and I was sitting there. And Josh was like, look, you know, we've got a little excess prorata. If you wanted to come, you know, we could do a little little something, something. And then, you know, Josh said, But the valuation uh is six hundred million dollars. And I was like, Saints preserve us. Who would pay six hundred million dollars, you know, value post money valuation or whatever it was at the time? I'm I'm you know, kind of guessing at that number, but it was it was still in the hundreds of millions, not billions of dollars. And I was like, I was like, that was, you know, in retrospect, that was like, you know, I didn't have a vehicle out of which to do it, but you know, with, you know, kind of 24 months of hindsight, I was like, wow, we got to start doing this. And we've been lucky to find our way into
0: some some pretty interesting things. So yeah, zooming back out a little bit, why do funds and funds even exist in the first place? Could first round not have gotten to, you know, those endowments? Or maybe give a little history and, and context for why why fund to funds serve a unique role in the market?
1: Sure. So there are, you know, a ton of reasons why people might uh, seek out a fund of funds. But most notably, uh you know if you look at it, you know, venture is either about access or about audacity. And so there are some people for whom, and there's some people who have, you know, some fund funds that have incredible access, great kind of roster of brand names. And those institutions that might, you know, Bob's College of Knowledge and Service uh, Station Graduate School, you know, they might not have access to X, Y, or Z fund, but they want access to to venture. So they go through fund funds and they they pay you know an extra layer of fees for that that access i find myself in the audacity bucket right which is i'm basically doing the shit that your investment committee won't let you do right so first round capital in 2007 was a non obvious bet data collective in 2011 was a non obvious bet some of the stuff I've done more recently, like House Fund at Berkeley or E14 at MIT, um, you know, those are non-obvious bets and they I'm super excited about them. They might work out, they might not. But it's hard for those guys, especially at the fund size, you know, that they're deploying for others to, uh, for larger institutions to access them, uh, you know, in any kind of meaningful way. Uh, and so we can also, by the way, then uh, help them spread around the risk by investing in a bucket of these risky managers um, so that they don't have to take rifle shots.
2: I want to underscore something that Chris was saying. It's I don't have great data on this because it's not collected anywhere that one can really find, given all of the um, confidentiality agreements that get signed about who invests in who. But when you go through and you look at the newer managers, you typically see family offices and fund of funds putting them in business. So – it's a bit of a chicken and egg, but part of the reasons why these vehicles exist is because people need them to exist. Right. And without them, a lot of emerging managers would not happen because it's just really hard for some of these larger platforms with larger checks, established managers, they continue to be backing to do a sufficient number of the new managers that come to market. And there is you no know, 50 to 80 new managers every year coming to market, and most of them are sub 100 million, probably a significant percentage sub 50 million. And that just isn't going to work if you have to write a $50 million check. Right.
1: You know, and it's been great because a couple of my investors have basically used our fund as tuition, right? So so we do charge, you know, we have very, you know, reasonable uh, economics uh, and very well aligned economics, which is more important, but nonetheless... Uh, it is an extra layer of fees, but people, you know, will, will make that trade for the education that they get in the asset class sometimes. So we have several people who kind of come in, we introduce them to the managers and then they go off and build their own program. People say, well, hey, CD, aren't you going to put yourself out of business? And I'm like, well, you know what? If I plug them into people and those people have been successful, then my returns will be great, which will you know keep me in in business now. the challenge of the fund of funds, and this is something that 's uh, that 's different in beezer 's world the challenge of the fund of funds is that you 're constantly refreshing your l p base you know not necessarily with every fund you know we 've had great kind of persistence, but often you have kind of people kind of coming and going it's there's a lot of optionality at the investor level. It is interesting though you know keying on something Beezer said. That fund of funds and family offices put a lot of emerging managers in business. And look, I was at Princeton's endowment for a while and it is, the rumors are true. We did actually shit chocolate ice cream and fart rainbows. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was, we could get access to a lot of things because we had the big P on our chest. And so, you know, these guys have a, you know, there's a little bit of a conceit, not in a negative, you know, value neutral way. There's a conceit that you can get into things and funds funds three, four or five. Although I think that people overestimate uh their ability to do so I think that's reserved for the, you know, the US News and World Report kind of top 25. And beyond that, you know, by the time you can get into by the time it's obvious enough for somebody to get uh really excited, because uh, most people look at performance and performance is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator, you know, by the time it's obvious, you know, the funds either too late, or, you know,
0: long in the tooth enough that the GPs have called in rich. Yeah. So if you look at the venture landscape, you have, you know, firms that have very different approaches, different, you know, theses, different ethos, look at, you know, firm like Jason Horowitz versus firm, like founders fund versus firm, like benchmark, v- very different in the fund to fund worlds. Are there LPs differentiating on approach or thesis or ethos in a way that creates a good conversation for for, for venture
2: it's an interesting question i don't know if LPS think about different there are probably ways that different LPS given who they are think about what they invest in but that's much I think that has probably smaller levels of change between whether you're an endowment or a foundation or an asset manager I mean I, I do think there's some opportunities you can take advantage of when you are looking to be first in versus if you're I can come I can come in eight or ten years later but I don't think I don't know if they really are radically different. If people are investing to make strong financial returns and that's going to be the lens that kind of coalesces to a point. Well, I,
1: I, I actually have a question for you because you are so much, I like literally want to be a sponge for information for Beezer because, because you are like, you know, at the top of your game. Do you have like a little, I have my own little watchword, which, which I'll share, but like, what is the prism through which you look at managers? Like I would be very curious, like when you, wake up in the morning, you say, I'm looking for this type of footprint?
2: Mm, I have a catchphrase. Do you tell? <laughs> do you tell? <laughs> no, I say it all the time. It's super boring. Um, why you? Oh, interesting. Yeah, Because we find, and we ask this about ourselves, because there's obviously why do people pick us and why are we in this business? But it's the lens that helps us then say, what are you doing as an investor? What, why are you here? Why is it you? Why is it your team? Why is it this opportunity set of entrepreneurs? Why will they pick you? Why will you make money? It sort of allows you to sort of go to the levels of team, market opportunity, portfolio construction. And we have a belief that if you are investing in something that's authentic to who you are and what you're going after, good things follow, right? It's just a natural, like you'll be differentiated in a way that is super, super hard to compete with. And all of that kind of gets bubbled up into the why you.
0: And what are underrated or overrated answers to that question?
2: You know, it's actually harder to answer than people think because that's, there's some great quote that I can't remember, but I'm going to stall, and then you will remember <laughs> about self-reflection by, like, Plato or somebody. <laughs> the unexplored life means nothing, whatever the, it is. Yeah. Chris is my... um
0: The examined life.
2: The unexamined life. Li- is not- Yes. yes. So usually Chris is my literature, Our my classical engineer. literature knowledge yes. expert, <laughs> so I can rely on him for the Latin phrase. But <laughs> Our
0: sound engineer is deep in philosophy. <laughs> yes. But it
2: actually is not an insignificant question, Yes. right? And so I think it's harder for people to answer than they think. And I will posit that for a lot of people, and this is definitely an answer an LP would give, the thinking about the fundraising is not the primary thing that most VCs think about because they're thinking about their deals, which – is illogical and is exactly in many cases what should be happening. But then the time isn't taken to think of, well, how do I then explain why us to a, somebody who doesn't have to choose us?
1: Yeah. I'll start by saying this. Beezer's a lot nicer than I am, right? Like she's actually like a better human being, which is why she can ask this question, you know, why you? And I believe that she asks it with full inquiry, like on the in- inquiry to advocacy scale. It's it's all inquiry. I come from a crankier place and my, my kind of angle is like, this is actually my prism. Give me a robust nonconformist with the courage of their convictions.
2: It's a Ooh. long catchphrase. It's a long catchphrase. <laughs> I might not remember all that. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: I think about the people I've backed and it's, you know, some days I think my portfolio is a little bit of like land of the misfit toys because I over index on really, um, robust nonconformists who by their very nature kind of have like sharp edges and, um, and are, are quirky in ways that maybe don't make them ideal for the cocktail party circuit, but get them real resonance with entrepreneurs. Beezer knows exactly who I'm talking about. So I won't use his name, but there's one guy that, uh, that we've both invested in and I once went to a, and I'm going to totally give it away by saying that I went to like a data scientists meeting and literally like I walk in and the you know the first guy I see is like he looks like Hogrid from Harry Potter and he's wearing like a Slayer t-shirt and Iron Maiden t-shirt and he has like two PhDs one from uh, you know CMU and the other from you know Cambridge in philosophy right like you know this guy is like you know a uh, uh, you know savant and you know I start talking to him about this guy And this is several years ago. And he goes, finally goes, look, he's not going to work with your kind of people. He's like, you're money people. Money people won't understand them. But with our people, he's part of the tribe. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, he's part of the tribe. Boom. This is my guy. And so literally that was the moment when the lights like, but it's not a, do you, I'm going to ask you. No, it's true.
2: No, no, it is. There's that. You can't fake that kind of authenticity. It's just you just can't. And it comes in all these different forms. Like you could argue that Kirsten Green at Forerunner maybe has data scientists with Slayer t-shirts on it. Who knows? But like she's got that same and the team has that same sort of linearity of like, here's what we do. Here's what we think. And the entrepreneurs flock to it. Right. Jason Lemkin at Saster. Like there are these people that are just so notable in how they how how they move around.
1: Right. Beezer, do you believe in love at first sight? Like, with, with a managers. VC an yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I asked that question provocatively. I've known Beezer since we've 1991. For a long time. <laughs> I, wow. But do you get love at first sight or does it build?
2: I think we've experienced both. Yeah. There's definitely times when there's an immediate connection and you're like, oh, this just lands. Yeah. Right? That's true. And there's other times when the more you go back and you're like, oh, this is like, you, you leave the meeting, you're like, that was interesting. And, and I'm sure this is exact correlation between VCs and entrepreneurs. And a week later, you're still like, that was a really interesting question. Right. And so like we were looking at New York, the metropolitan area, and we had a question around technology and how deep is the tech? And we kept running around it and running around it and running around it. And I blogged about this because that's when we ended up violating our rules around not doing smaller funds. And we did notation because I just couldn't kick the question that they were trying to go out, out of our heads. And and it and it just it just landed right. I mean, of course, we liked them when we first met them, but there was something about their thesis that we thought was just.
0: And the thesis was that there will be big companies in New York, and that they'll have access to. them?
2: Following the trend line around the technologists leaving, spinning out of existing companies in the ecosystem, and doing companies based on a real technology backbone, Um and it could be any kind of company that wasn't predetermined like what it would look like, but that the system had started with that, and that's what they're looking for. And we had the same question in our minds of has the New York ecosystem reached that state now? Because I started my career in 2000 in a VC slash incubator in New York in the meatpacking district, right? And all of it was just leveled after the big downturn. And so how deep was the ecosystem and had it rebuilt was a question that we were really hopeful the answer would be yes, but didn't know. And again, like this sort of questions keep coming up in your mind. So versus some of the other funds we've met collectively with Chris, we've, we've worked together on occasion. Yeah, every now and again.
1: You know, it's funny. I asked the question because I actually, I'm a little bit of a love at first sight kind of guy. I think most of like when I met Josh Koppelman at the Conshohocken and Marriott outside of Philly for the first time in 2005 or six, literally walking out of that meeting, I, we were in the lobby and I said, Josh, if you didn't exist, I'd have to invent you. And then he said, Dumos, if you didn't exist, I'd have to invent you. And I felt like so bromantic. And then I thought about our friend with uh With the, the data scientists, uh, you know, that was kind of love at first sight. But as I, as I thought about it, as you were answering the question thoughtfully, you know, sometimes these GPs like get under your skin, they wear it, you and you like don't want to love them. And then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, there might be something there. And then, you know, that's actually a, a, I was just telling a story to tell a story, but like actually I stumbled into like the, the, um, the takeaway from that is, a great mentor of mine when I was doing public market stuff before business school said a great analyst has no ego. And, you know, it's funny, a lot of people invest with ego. And I felt like, you know, myself when I've like had to change my mind, you really have to tuck your ego away. And that's, that's a real, you know, that's a real challenge. And, and I think, you know, as a result, you have to invest with humility and, you know, and, and really it's like a, in a sense a labor of love, you have to invest with love and vulnerability and all that stuff. And that's hard yeah
2: mm, strong convictions weekly held yes. Isn't that what we're all supposed to be yes uh, sp-
0: speaking of uh of humility you know we talked about you know first round we talked about data collective the a bunch of others you guys have hit you know from the beginning put people in business what are the ones or what's something you've you've missed that you misread a signal or you just you don't know you know going back you said oh i wish if i saw this obviously in hindsight it's 2020 but tell a, a story of something you missed
2: so our platform is seven years old, which in some respects is wonderful because it allowed us to reimage some things that we think about. And if you don't – if you can start fresh, you can kind of recreate yourself in a way that's very flexible and, and we've really tried to use it to be um, in service to our GPs. But it means you just weren't around 40 years ago, right? So what's harder is when you want to look back in time because seven years, is actually – it's just – if we invest in a fund in 2012, most of them start the the data starts coming in sufficiently between the years 6 and 8 so like we can look to 2012 and be like oh what happened in that vintage but before then it's it's harder for us to answer that but there's funds like first round right or benchmark that that ship is for the LPs that are in it that is an awesome ship to be in right but it's much harder for someone who's not part of that initial crew so there's lots of activities like that and you know our goal is to make sure we catch them for the future so that we're there but going backwards we i could list a long list of names of VCs where Occasionally, if you build a relationship and hang around the hoop effectively, you can get in because to Chris's earlier comment, there, there almost always are shifts in the LP base for, for a whole host reasons that if GPs want to hear about why it's actually not going to be the same way today as it is 20 years from now, we're yeah. happy to talk about. And we've been fortunate to, to sometimes take that advantage and to work with some new, man- new to us, but not new to the world. But generally speaking, it's tougher because there's, it's just the performance data seven years is really brief.
1: You know, it's funny. I was part of the group that said no to Excel at Princeton. You're going to share the story. <laughs> I mean, but this actually isn't the story I'm going to tell because I actually don't have any regrets about it. We said no to but Excel. Tell the story
2: anyway.
1: Well, I mean, oh, not that. I'm not going to tell that story. That's a whole <laughs> other story. <laughs> then I got to TIFF and we said no again. And that became the Facebook fund. So I, I said no twice to the, you know, one of the best funds of the decade and it's funny because I was playing golf, uh, a few years later, once it became obvious with a guy who's a Midas, top of the Midas list kind of guy who I won't name. And he said, I was like, dude, what did I miss? And he goes, you missed absolutely nothing. You did exactly what a well trained, uh, institutional investor would do, given the data you had at the time. Right. And, and for those who remember, you know, XL is now XL, but at the time, you know, kind of 2000, three 2004 I had a lot of friends who had like this oh shit moment where they were like begging 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 to get in and then you know everybody was bailing out so they had a chance to get in and then they got the the books with the info and they're like oh shit and so you know and, and Fenton had left and and you know it, I mean there was there was a lot going on but they they turned it around and this this becomes for me like you know the, the secret of six you know if you ask I once asked the Yale guys what their secret of success in, in, venture is. And Tim Sullivan, uh, who ran private equity there for a long time, a really great dude said, uh, we get off this bus one stop too early rather than one stop too late. And that was always my philosophy. And then boom, I get kicked in the ass by Excel. <laughs> so, um, but I'll tell you, you know, whatever that was, that was what it was. I don't have any regrets about that. The one I do have regrets over is Steve Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was 2008 and he was spinning baseline out. Um, and I spent, and it was really nice because I'd done a lot of things uh, in the ecosystem by then. I'd done first round and uh, OATV and and uh, Floodgate and a bunch of others by then. Uh, and I went and met with Steve. Uh, Steve actually reached out because because uh, he'd gotten a, a few you know calls recommending. And we had this great meeting, total meeting of minds. He's such an amazing guy, such a smart guy. And I went back to my investment committee and I said, you know, I'd like to do Baseline. And there was a guy who shall remain unnamed. On the committee, very, you know, good public market investor, um, who's an endowment CIO. And he goes, Duvos, I think what you're doing with these seed funds is the triumph of hope over experience. He's like, I don't, you know, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it anymore. Like I've had enough. And he was like, look, you can do it, but this is like, you know, a career risk kind of move. And it kind of like fucked with my worldview a little bit because I was like, wait, what? Like, I'm like here to invest without the fear of being wrong alone. Because if you're afraid of being wrong and alone, you'll never be right and alone. And that like seed of doubt, you know, kind of went in my head. And then I kind of slow rolled Steve and then ended up saying no. And I don't think, you know, I, I don't think he's ever looked at me the same way again, Um, which is really too bad because that was, you know, Steve's an outstanding investor, outstanding guy and has had amazing success. And that's the one that got away.
2: Well, and your question is something we think about a lot today because, ironically, there's not as many funds in the market now as there were back when I started. In 2000, there were over 600 funds in the market and about, I don't know, some, the number down here somewhere, about, uh, call it 17% of that were first-time funds. So there was a huge number of potential investable funds back then. So now we only have like a little over 200 every year now gets done. Many more first-time funds as a percentage, but still – Given the avalanche of opportunity that's coming at it by all of these folks who are starting new funds and or, I'm not even sure what the right word is, the re, the remaking of many funds as people move in between existing platforms. It's
0: looking like NBA free agency or. A little bit, yeah, right? Yeah, and you're day.
2: like, how does, who's the next Steve Anderson? Right. And how are you going to know? Because you could spend all day long just meeting with these 700 micro funds that are out there. And that doesn't even touch the series A, series B, series C portion of the market. And so that, given the amount of the velocity of movement right now in the market makes you really wonder what's what is going to get missed yeah. or not you no know, time alone a decade from now we can look back and know but it's something we think about a lot is how do we actually manage in the ecosystem and still spend time with our existing managers and right. show up well so actually double
1: clicking on that an old mentor of mine uh who's a public markets guy he goes well you know what do you do When you're, you know, by then I was at Princeton and doing, you know, a fund of funds. I mean, an endowment is basically a fund of funds with one client. And he's like, so what do you do, right? When you're picking funds, what do you do? And I go, well, look, I'm trying to strip out skill from luck, Mm -hmm. right? And I've thought about that. And then I see the number of goofballs who like did the one deal. Like the number of clowns that are in company X or Y. Uber has given birth to a lot of funds. I was going to say Uber, but I don't want to I don't want to point it
2: But like there's a lot, right? There's any fund that – any sorry, any company that's had an extraordinarily high upramp in TVPI, even better if it's DPI, but, you know, well, I'll just keep waiting on that one.
1: Moolah <laughs> exactly. and the Kula baby.
2: <laughs> but, right? And there's probably, what, 50 investors, 100 investors, even more angels. So you just like the – the network, I want to say network effect, but it's not really network effect. It's like the off ramp of everybody is just amazing.
1: Well, and, and you know, that people ask me, I've been doing this for 18 years now and people ask me, what is changed? you know what has changed since did
2: Eric asked us that <laughs> oh,
1: funny that yeah, um and you know the thing that's changed most for me is is the proliferation of angel activity and so anybody can you know write 50 checks and all you're trying to do is catch lightning in a bottle once and then that's credibility enough to find some quasi institutional pool of capital to give you money it seems right and this this actually suggests to me and, and by the way th- you know, I call it dilettante capital, right? There are just a ton of people who have, you know, they're, they have entrepreneurial experience and they're, you know, uh, you know, founder friendly and all these things. And they've got their, you know, angelist portfolio and, you know, they go out and, you know, do one great deal and they think they can go out and raise institutional capital, not understanding that being an investor is a trade craft unto itself. And so I feel like the sophistication level. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great entrepreneurial energy. That's that's the upside. The, the entrepreneurial energy in the funds business is way up. And I think that's a very positive thing. But the sophistication is way down. And the amount of time I personally spend l- lecturing people, berating people, haranguing people about portfolio construction issues is, is remarkable. And by the way, Beezer, you're always so smart and Johnny on the spot with the data. How many new funds – Closed. Oh.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, wait, I have it.
1: <laughs> well, how many funds last year? How many funds oh, were raised last year? Did
2: not pull the last year number, but it's actually not that different from this year. So we're, this is pitch book numbers. Yeah. About 232 this year. And I can pull up my laptop and give you last year's number. I just didn't have it sure. written down. Um, But it wasn't that much more than last year because we've been, it's been pretty solidly over 200 for the last yeah. few years. Like it's just kind of at a good steady state, but.
1: So here's a question, right? Like there are a lot of institutional LPs who define victory as being top quartile, yeah. right? I call this tyranny of the relativists, right? Like you can be a winner and be top quartile. Well, when there are 200 funds, the 50th fund is top quartile. I think the 50th fund is going to struggle to, you know, f- even, you know, forget match the S&P 500 might even struggle to to return capital in a distributed, you know, DPI basis, right? I think that's a big challenge and I, I, I'll get off my soapbox.
2: Well, I like what you said about the entrepreneurial activity in venture because we've been thinking through about innovations in venture. And in some levels, the industry, like being the nature of venture capitalism, like as a venture capitalist as a job and LP as a job secondary that is, is actually hugely unchanged, right? Cause it's math. You put money in, you get money back. Like it's just bounded because it, unless we get into theoretical math. Pretty restricted, right? <laughs> but when you think about how funds have changed over time in trying to differentiate, and because we're in this bull market where there is no shortage of capital, right? Like we might not be as – there could always be more, but there is – it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. There's just a ton of money there, right? And how do you differentiate? So so funds like Village Global are doing interesting things. First round was super different and changed the industry. And Dreesen, probably not the first people to think through doing value-added services, but like – God did Sand Hill Road react when they showed up, right? That was like big burst of something had happened. And you see like thesis coming up and thesis, tr- you see all these sort of ways of saying like, how do we actually stand out in a field where money is just, yes, money as SoftBank Vision Fund has showed us, if you have enough of it, I guess it's a differentiator. <laughs> but for the, but unless you're in the hundred billion dollar category, the rest of us mere mortals, yeah. it is, it's by definition fungible. Right. So you have to do something besides that. Pick your, pick your poison. And that's sort of interesting because it has sort of poked people into the thinking through like the why you and what are you going to do? And I think it's probably a net benefit to entrepreneurs. I mean, maybe it's confusing and there's a noise of venture capitalists, but having more people trying to think through how to be better at their job sounds like an yeah. ecosystem benefit.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think there's, I put in three different buckets of how firms differentiate it in terms of one is what you invest in. And that's Kristen Green and Forerun, you know, picking a specific theme and owning that theme. Two is where, what specific pool you invest in. So it's house fund in Berkeley or it's, you know, notation, uh, and Nick Charles and Alex in New York, or it's how you operate as a firm, maybe in terms of how you add value to entrepreneurs, which is, you know, in a general capacity or how you source companies. So Village with the network leader model or Andreessen or, or first round, et cetera. So with that in context, which of those you know, thematic, geography-based or sort of platform or, or novel approach are you most excited about? And broadly, how do you guys think about emerging managers? How do you approach it generally?
2: Well, we are guilty of liking to geek out over the data. And I can tell you that we haven't found an easy answer of saying do X and money will rain on your head. But we'd like to find that answer. <laughs> um, So I don't think we're super – we're not super prescriptive as far as it should be X, Y, or Z, but we do look at in the totality if you're trying to approach a certain market. Like, So we've been longtime fans of Union Square. Like one of the originators of thesis, probably they weren't the first ones to do thesis-based investing, but they certainly have done a really badass job of it, right? But is everyone who then says I'm a thesis-based investor going to be amazing? Hopefully, but no, there's no guarantee. You can't pick a model and just say my model is going to. You don't have a top down saying,
0: "Hey, we're looking for a Vancouver based fund, or we're looking for a AIML thesis." No, but what would,
2: what would say is if you are in a certain area, and that could be geography in some right. situations. What's going on in that market, and how do you play against it? Right. And then sometimes we've done things. So we do U.S., Europe, and Israel where we've made bets on funds in other geographies that we wouldn't necessarily have made in the Bay Area because there's advantages to being there or that play themselves. Like we, we are pretty straight down the road series A investor the most majority of the time in the Bay Area and well, really in the U.S. But in Europe, we've done some seed funds. And that we've ended up putting a fair bit of capital into because the velocity of fundraising is also faster, we think it's a competitive advantage in Europe and given what they're playing at and what they're doing. And it was a place of the market that we had a strong thesis around. And But would that have played the same if they're in the Bay Area? Who knows, right?
1: And well, you know, my favorite Latin phrase is, Ubi Pani Sibi Patria, where there is bread, there is my country. And that's partially because i Is I've, that
2: a pizza reference? <laughs> exactly.
1: I've got a gluten problem. Um, <laughs> I'm on the high gluten diet. Anyhow, this is actually like, I think about very often, I think about where am I wrong? And I have had first a 180 and now maybe a second 180 to make a full circle. <laughs> so you're back where you started. you um, <laughs> back where I started. Yes, um, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> we shall not cease from exploration. Who dot, knew dot, you were having
2: a literary podcast? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <cha. laughs>
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, by the way, uh, speaking of geography, you know, part of the reason uh, I love California is uh, I read Walt Whitman's Song of the Redwood Tree uh, when I was in high school. And he said, you know, in California, I see the genius of the modern, the child of the real and the ideal. And I think that's like the essence of what we do here. Right. And, and you know, Whitman says, I see populous cities and the latest inventions. What? That was 1850,
2: dude. I was reading Isabella Yende. <laughs> also great stories based on oh, being out here and the, uh, the right. whole movement out West, right? Uh,
1: Isn't
0: that awesome? LPs and literature. That
2: should, should literature. be your
1: podcast. Let's see, I was, I was a history major. So, you know, I, these guys like who, you know, all these like CS guys from Stanford, like uh, they're, they're a lot smarter than me, but, but I have good cocktail party conversation. So I was early in my career very excited about alternate ecosystems. So keep in mind, this is 0102. Um, at Princeton, we did Ignition up in Seattle. Uh, by 04, I was a big investor in Madrona up in Seattle. Had looked a whole bunch of other places and, uh, done some investments in, in kind of second tier geographies. And those investments, the ones I mentioned have, have been fine, have worked out fine, but the ecosystems as a whole haven't developed. And, and I think about Seattle in particular, which again is fine. The Madrona guys have done really well, um, as have the Ignition guys. But it hasn't flourished the way I thought I would. It would flourish as a startup ecosystem necessarily. Maybe it is starting to now, but it's, I think because the essence of Silicon Valley is, is, you know, a legacy of failure, right? Like you have all these diasporas, often from failed companies, right? That actually creates this kind of dynamism of people, whereas people get stuck at Amazon. It's a great place to be, but there's not a lot of flow in and out of Amazon. You know, for a while, the, the, the most engineers per capita were, were in Boise, um, because I think Micron was up there, but there was no big ecosystem in Boise because everybody went to Micron and stayed there forever, right? Ooh, um, HP had a big office there when I
2: worked at HP. Boise was where the printers were. I think, is
1: that right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, I really got excited about some of these alternate ecosystems and, and, and one day I was talking, you know, excitedly. To, I felt like, you know, in my memory, I'm like a little boy in shorts wearing like a little cap with a propeller on it. Um, you know, talking to, to dad, who is David Swenson, uh, at Yale. And, uh, and I'm like, Mr. Swenson, Mr. Swenson, I've got this great idea, alternate geographies. And he just, you know, he's like, well, Duvos, why do you think that? And, uh, here we go again. Um, and he goes, he goes, why do you think that? And I go, oh, well, you know, uh there's, you know, kind of lower cost of talent. Uh, you know, there's great talent to start with great technologies, lower cost, you know, less competitive intensity. You know, I, I ran through this this whole thing. And I said, you know, in Seattle, it costs, you know, 58% uh what it does, uh, you know, in the Bay Area to get a company to first revenue, whatever, whatever stat I threw out. And he goes, Duvos, you're playing a value hand in a growth game. And again, that like, Gobsmacked me. And I was like, whoa, maybe, maybe I need to be more momentum oriented. And, uh, and that kind of changed my, changed my perspective. And then the, a lot of the funds I, I, you know, was tracking ended up being like really kind of unfulfilling. There are a lot of great people around the country who do good work, but there's no, there's not as much, you know, kind of stupid head spinning optionality. That's captured, and and I I created a thesis around why that is, and for like seven or eight years like that was the thesis, and then you see like you know uh, a lot of groups using the geographic arbitrage, like finding companies elsewhere and bringing them to the Bay Area to kind of blitz scale here, and that, yeah, the whole blitz scaling, like Lily and Hoffman, like you know they, those guys kind of changed my worldview. And more recently, I'm just like, wow, it's so friggin' expensive here to not only start a company but to retain people. And look, you know, somebody the other day said to me, like, the unemployment rate in the Bay Area for engineers is negative. Like, you can actually, as an engineer, hold two jobs, and nobody will dare say anything to you for fear that you'll leave. And so it's like crazy, and that you know, and and that gets that to is me- not
2: true in the LP world. <laughs> <anybody>?
1: <laughs> so anyhow i i've started to like rethink my uh my bay area centrism around um uh, clusters of excellence. So, you know, where is it that there is, you know, kind of a particular cluster of, and critical mass of technologists in a certain vertical, uh, you know, that could be interesting, you know, is there a, you know, people talk about whatever it is, the I 65 cluster, right? Like with, with, um, you know, kind of healthcare and, and some of the stuff going on there, you know, is there, uh you, you know, what's going on in Austin? What, ha- what are its particular attributes? That's, that's, you know, where I'm kind of underweight now.
2: It's interesting because we believe and I don't think there's – I think everything in my life reinforces this from an end of one is that innovation knows no boundaries, right? So the fact that the world is more transparent and you can see things and the whole cost of doing – you can create so much more on your own in your backyard, all of that would increase the likelihood of great companies starting really absolutely anywhere. But there is something about the health. Not even the health, but the layers in the ecosystem that are necessary to build a company and who are the managers that are going to come in at different stages and what's the experience set. And that seems to be – I remember I read a book by – I wish I could remember the professor's name because – Chris would remember if he was me, but it was called Setting the Table and it went through all these things that sounded super boring like regulation and tax and all this stuff that needs to be true for people to switch jobs and have two jobs at once. So like All this stuff in these other ecosystems in the US, right. state by state and other countries like just needed to sort of turn the dial because people always say to me, don't we need to help promote bringing venture to an ecosystem? I'm like, yeah, let people make money right? Not any illegal ways, like, you know, do all the right things. But like, people will find opportunities, and maybe they move them, maybe they don't. But if you facilitate business creation and decreation, if you allow people to fail, because a lot of countries are much more, they really punish you if you go bankrupt. Right. And the US is somewhat unique in this respect. And that's part of why we're a more fertile place to start and stop businesses.
1: So this fluidity of... Uh, Particularly people, but, you know, kind of economic fluidity, as you said, is kind of unique to the United States. But what has caused me to be like historically so California focused is that California Supreme Court has been over and over and over, you know, steadfast that any kind of non-compete is restraint of trade, mm-hmm. right? Is, 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 uh, you
2: know, and it I might not feel that way about carried interest. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, don't get me started. I, uh, I, I I bet carried interest is going to get taxed before I ever see a dollar of it. Oh, well, (laughs) um, (laughs) neither here nor there, but yeah, the, the, you know, kind of, uh, non-enforceability of non-competes is, uh, is a real, you know, kind of, uh, competitive advantage, I think, for California, particularly. And then you talked about kind of cultural stuff, which is why I was always so cynical about New York, because New York felt like a bonus culture, whereas California always felt like an equity culture, right? But, you know, I was thinking like, what's changed in my own kind of view? Like, why why am I more optimistic? And it's there's just so much more information, right? Like if you think about venture in the eighties, it was a dark art, right? Like, you know, Reed Dennis and, you know, these guys on, you know, Burton Burge and all these guys on Sand Hill Road would like mwahaha, you know, they've got this, you know, bubble bubble toil and trouble, right? <laughs> um, it was like this, this cauldron that they had. And now you can listen to podcasts like this. And, you know, Brad in an amazing job. Like, uh, you know, Josh Koppelman in the early days, you know, we could go, go, go. And now everybody's, you know, blogging and podcasting and there's just so much information out there that uh, that I think it's really flattened the world.
2: Well, the one thing that I, I don't know when it's going to tip sufficiently to change the ecosystem, but I worry about a lot of things and I just add this to the list is that you're talking about the bonus culture versus the equity culture. And as companies stay private longer and layer and layer the value of people's options. At what point are we going to flip? And then people will be basically salary and bonus, the same way I was back in the old days at HP, right? Which is totally fine and, and traditional in the way it was. And I even had a pension being accumulated and like all the goods. That's not what the startup industry and the venture industry had did their math based on. So if the math changes at the somewhere in the middle, but not at the top or the bottom, like, is that going to be a real challenge? And all of it's Being triggered by this, you never have to really exit. Or if the folks that are exiting are a thin layer, and or maybe it's going down sufficiently down the stack, and that's going to keep things healthy. But I think we're watching those dynamics. I think it can just really make life different for an employee in a startup that may or may not be getting the deal they thought they were. And I, I when I worry about our industry, I worry about that because if people don't want to work at startups, that's the biggest problem. It's I don't worry about venture capitalists. I don't worry about LPS like. That it's the people in the companies that are going to be the, the, where the focus should be.
1: It's funny. I've had a couple of friends recently ask me about joining certain startups. And I tell them, like, you got to get a sense for the cap table and the preference stack. Because if you're going to come in with an option package, you need to know where you are in that line. And I think that you're exactly right. Like, there's this magic, right, that, that people think about. They they think about, um, you know, this, this. In fact, I always say, you know, in the venture industry or in the startup, in the startup world, we use, uh, you know, lottery slogans with Ivy League veneer. So, you know, optionality is the same thing as, hey, you got to be in it to win it, right? <laughs> and so, um, hey, you never know, right? Like, is, is the same thing as asymmetric, you know, outcome. Um, you know, we've got this whole, you know, it all takes us a dollar and a dream. And, and maybe, you know, maybe some some preferred shares. Anyhow, so uh, so I, I do.
0: That's, that's a big, huge worry of mine few questions. One is how do you guys think about defensibility within venture within venture firms as they as they evolve? Do do they actually build real defensibility, is it only brand, is it something else?
2: I think I feel different ways on that on different days. <laughs> to be the brutal honesty, sometimes you look at some the permanence and the uh pre, like sort of the preservation of well, let me say it this way, the permanence of brand is amazing, right? And it can carry c- firms through some tough times. And for and that, sometimes that's great and sometimes People will come and say something. You're like, "Have you caught up on the news lately?" Right. Like, not not entirely sure that firm stands for what it stood for before. Well, I want
0: to ask specifically about Kleiner.
2: Uh, oh, interesting.
0: Because I, I, I was also going to ask about firm reinvention. You mentioned yeah. earlier when Excel, when Fenton left Excel, how do you guys think about can a firm like Kleiner weather that and be at the same place that they were? Can they rebuild? Do you, how do you look at uh, firms that have, I don't say lost their way, but people have left, and now it's just a
2: changing of the guard. Can I use one of my favorite Christie versus quote? My crystal ball is in the shop. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, the amazing thing about venture is like, and it's why it's so in, constantly intriguing is it is constantly changing. And you, I mean, unless like there's there's sometimes things go so horribly wrong, and this isn't necessarily common to any particular firm, and you're like, mm, that's gonna be tougher, right? Because they haven't had the historical performance, they don't have the install base of LPs, and we can talk about how one leverages that. To, um, how to be thoughtful about putting LPs into your firm such that you increase the odds of having them coming back. And there's some you're like, okay, this is clearly time to, they're going to have a hard time raising. But other times, like, you know, your f- example about Facebook is great. Like one company can change the stars for the next 25 years. And if we could call what company that was, we'd have all sorts of other opportunities ahead of us. Right. <laughs> I don't know. What's your take on that? Now that I stole your quote,
1: oh, no, you 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 stole it and made it better and made it your own. I love it. I think that one of the truisms in finance is that the assets press the elevator button at the end of the day and walk out the door. And it amazes me that firms like Benchmark actually have been able to stay at the top of their game with a rotating you know group of people. And I think in that case, right, there are some cultural elements to it, and the way they structure themselves, and the you know the way they you know they recreate themselves. Whereas there are other firms where the founding partners called in rich, and the next generation sucks, right? And so it really is idiosyncratic, which I think is why Beezer and I, on a daily basis, you know earn our pay because staying on top of the, you know these are people businesses and understanding these folks and their behavioral footprints and their you know kind of change over time in a very you know intimate way is is kind of key to the voodoo that we do i am always puzzled when people start their evaluation of a fund with track record because by the time something becomes apparent the people that did it, you know, were at a very different place in their lives, you know, had you know, different behavioral footprints, potentially, you know, what is it that they say, like, every seven years, your, your body is entirely different on a cellular basis, there are no cells that are right. And, you know, obviously, you know, as as the Romans might have said, Newman Semper Ad Est, the spirit is always there Damn, have more <laughs>
2: <laughs> vinnie vicky something <laughs> I the bread. but would say the part that's so amazing is still that there is there isn't a great place to go to learn i mean the, these podcasts and things are wonderful but when people say like I, you meet entrepreneurs who sort of life before facebook didn't really exist and yet there is a long history there and some of it may be irrelevant but sometimes when people talk about f- companies that a firm did you're like well that actually isn't the people that are there or somebody new has come and it's changed the dynamic of the firm in a positive way or negative way like it's that depends. But the, the ability to do homework on this is really limited because everyone only knows certain range of people. And if you want to know the entrepreneurs, it could be a firm changes its stripes a bit in what they invest in. And that could be great news or not great news. And they might attract a whole different kind of entrepreneur. So the folks over there, and it's, it's sort of this interesting mishmash. And I, I'm with Chris on the, it's, it really is at maybe at a super high level. There are some firms like Sequoia and Benchmark that seem to have amazing management of succession over the generations. Yeah. But I would posit there is. I would even be surprised if there is a baker's dozen of funds that have managed succession. And had, by and by, say that even though track record is a lagging indicator, I've had multiple three x net funds through different people making those decisions because it is probably the hardest thing to do in venture.
0: Have you seen a firm that was at the top of their game and then dropped out of? And uh, maybe it's you know firms that were classically great like Mayfield or August or Trinity or something, then get back into the top? Or it's if it, is it pretty hard to do that?
2: Oh, it's an interesting question. It is really hard. Succession is extraordinarily difficult for a a huge number of human reasons. And also, I I really wanted to get a PhD in organizational behavior. So I'm going to own where this comes from. (laughs) I actually think that venture firms, there's no reason why a lot of the good business books that apply to companies that make widgets don't apply to venture. Yet, I think most people think about their job is to invest capital, not in building a firm. And that's that might work at a size, a certain size, but when you have 25, 50 people in an entity and you want to be a lot around for 40 years, we have a belief that it matters. And if, if people aren't focusing on that, it's going to, they could by virtue of investing in, in Uber, make a ton of money and it's irrelevant. Cause once money starts raining down, nobody cares. Like, the details go away, right? It's a great absolver of did you actually show up and treat your employees well, right? <laughs> So, which was also part of the dynamic of venture, which makes it really hard. But it, there actually aren't that many amazing companies that then come back into every fund. If there were, there would be a lot higher. The top quartile would actually have much bigger numbers than like, what is it? 2.1, 1.7, right? right? It's, it's indicative of it's not, it's not really there in the industry. Right. So therefore, how you, again, it's super hard to put the data against this, but I, we have a belief that how you manage your firm when you've got these sort of multi, more bodies than just a couple and successive, successive funds, really does matter and it's going to help you, right? It doesn't just matter in some weenie way, but like in a, oh, no, like you'll actually get better returns if this is true. And you'll have LPs stick with you during the tough times because there can be like nobody had a great return in 2002 and 2003. It was just bad, right? (laughs) Like you just – there are times when like it's just bad news. But who's going to stick with you is also part of the relationship.
1: Well, actually, that's a, a great point. The management of venture firms is so unsophisticated. And uh you know, the 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 thing that somebody said to me once when I was very early, actually Sam Colella, uh who's at Versant, longtime IVP guy then at Versant, Sam said, um, you know, a lot of great venture firms are managed like basketball teams. But a a lot of the majority of firms act like tennis teams where everybody's playing their own match. And so The dynamics associated with that are, you know, are very different in terms of, you know, kind of partner cohesion and, and whatnot, as opposed to a bunch of different fiefdoms. And what is amazing is that LPs actually have a lot more visibility because, by the way, as LPs, one of the things in our job description is we have to be really good gossips. And so we jibber jabber about GPs all day long. I mean, we know about all your shenanigans, guys. What surprises me is how quickly lps are willing to abandon firms when performance is bad and the people are nasty and arrogant so there's a firm right now that's raising and i was talking to a a decent-sized investor in that firm and they said they're they're gonna pass and i said what's going on he goes ah the performance is so so but we really hate dealing with those sons of bitches and i'm like wow that's actually like
2: that's hardcore.
1: That's hardcore. I'm like,
2: that's like, really? Oh, that's like, oof.
1: <laughs> but in a world right now where you know, one group I talked to the other day, an LP, a, an institutional investor is at, um, it's an endowment type investor. They're at 19% NAV in venture and their target is seven, right? And all of a sudden, when you're like at that level, you can actually start to care about if GPs treat you like shit. Now, I don't have any ego about it, like, I don't care if you know. You know, if Doug Leone comes over and, and sticks a thumb in my eye, I'd still say, "Please, sir, might I have some sequoia?" <laughs> um, he's a swell guy, uh, <laughs> but uh, but I could, you know, imagine. Um, <laughs> but
2: you and a whole long line of people, <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: But I always think, you know, if you treat LPs like that, how do you treat entrepreneurs, right? There's like, there is like, a, you know, a, a level of you know humanity that you know that that is core to this business, right? Understanding people's behavioral footprints is kind of what we do. And uh, when people are, you know, really arrogant, really dismissive and not thoughtful about their business and just, you know, kind of, you know, w- Henry McCants at Greylock, uh, one of the greatest investors uh, of his era said to me once he goes, Duvos, when capital becomes cheap uh, and time is expensive, look out. He goes, venture works really well when time is cheap and capital is expensive. And so, uh, know. says, and when you have the reverse, you know, look out. And I feel like time has gotten really expensive. And I think that, um, you know, as, as, uh, as the tide goes out, we'll actually see who's swimming naked. Right.
0: Is there too much money in, in the asset class or how, how should we think about it?
2: Depends that? on who you are. If you're an entrepreneur, no. Right. <laughs> Bring it <laughs> on. From, from
0: your perspective, either, how should we think about it?
2: It's an interesting balancing act. I don't think there is – I don't know how you draw the tam of like, oh, there's only this many good ideas and they only need this much money. So it's sort of an unknowable – but it does feel like what's happening is with the money all going at the growth rounds. We're actually having this conversation this morning, which is everybody looks at the same pitch book numbers, crunch base, you know, pick your data source. And the the majority of the money that's going into venture, and this is in the US and it's in Europe, probably true in Israel, I haven't seen the numbers yet, it's going at the later rounds. And there's fewer seed deals and there's fewer Series A. So maybe if you're trying to get seed money, it's not as great a time. And I do find this confusing because yet there are always new funds starting. They tend to be small. So I haven't yet squared that. but. It did did make us think this morning like, oh, this could be a really good time to be a Series A investor or like like a later seed because if everyone's trying to write their $50 million check into this growth round and there's fewer companies coming out, we're like, hmm. I mean, yes, this is self-serving. we invested the Series A, but we do try to keep stress testing it and saying like, are we in the right portion of the stack? Which is a long-winded way of saying in some respects there's never enough money. And there's other times where as a human and as a geek of PhD OB behavior – If you dump hundreds of millions of dollars into a system that doesn't know how to handle it because they haven't been asked to handle it, don't be surprised if things break.
0: We haven't even gotten to crypto yet. (laughs) No, totally. But I'm saying like in a firm,
2: like if you handed us like any human, here is like a 100 times the money your budget calls for, good luck. Like as an organizational process standpoint, like it, it just that, yes, the extraordinary people will figure it out. But for a lot of just humans doing human things, that's just the company's could be less successful one could argue than if they actually had the amount they needed right that's my polite answer now chris is going to say something like <laughs> way more cranky <laughs> no I, I
1: i think you know I, I just go back to buffett's equation which is uh opportunity equals value minus perception right and what's happened is you know we've gotten to the point where you can shine such spotlights on companies that the perception really blows out the is, you know not you know doesn't you know, grow uh necessarily as quickly. And so as a result, the the opportunity shrinks, right? And the problem is that it all works in a closed system like venture. But at some point, we got to put moolah in the kula, right? So we've got to get these companies, we've got to find the greater fool to buy this. And it's either in a, you know, in an M&A uh, transaction or in, in the public markets. And- Do we uh, have
2: any public markets? I
1: know, right? It's- <laughs> crickets
2: are chirping (laughs) 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 can the government come back (laughs) oh my god
1: (laughs) don't get me started by the way my one editorial is um trump's wall is you know fourth century you know solution for a 21st century problem i hear his latest requisition for the air force he's asked for a bunch of biplanes same thing right it's like old solutions to new problems. And
2: to your comment before, there's multiple, multiple LPs that I know who are saying, well, I have X, Y, and Z in my portfolio. Great. And now it's going to go public and that will relieve the ability to use money to distribute something else. Like, I don't know, children, like hospitals, like all sorts of stuff, plus reinvest back into venture. And if this, if none of this occurs, you're like, ooh. This could be this could be painful, right? <laughs> on so many levels, in so many ways. But the industry was kind of counting on some liquidity coming through.
1: Well, this is my, you know, kind of exit sphincter, yes, <laughs> analogy, right? Like that we keep stuffing the snake and stuffing the snake, and the, the sphincter is tight, you know, and we just the snake's just getting bigger, and the you know the poop isn't coming out the back end to fertilize the new fields, right? But but a it, it, LP Nirvana is when you're, you know, recycling distributions. It's, uh, it's, it's circular, and you know, as we have disruptions in the in the flow of funds, and especially now when, you know, everybody is so far out over their everybody who's got a mature program is so far out over their skis because funds have been coming back faster and bigger, and NAVs have been ballooning, and the money hasn't been coming out the back end, and you know the We'll look back i'll we'll listen to this podcast again in five years, and we'll you know then be able to judge whether this is just a passing phenomenon or a you know harbinger of of a more kind of you know sand in the gears of the you know the of the system
2: or we'll start dividending. like the system will have to shift yeah.
1: well that like, that's but, right but,
2: but then there's but it begs more questions than we have time for because it kind of goes to like, well, why would you set up a system that uses a high velocity exit? and use dividends because that's what already exists in a sort of slower growth world so that the two don't seem aligned, but I'd have to sharpen my pencil to figure out how to make it work.
1: You know, but back to the, the kind of is there too much money question, I'm actually, in a sense, optimistic about it um, in the following way. Like, there should be Secondary exit transactions and the way that the buyout ecosystem segmented into microcap buyouts, small, you know, low end in the middle market, and some of these companies get traded up the Mm -hmm. stack, and maybe we start to see that. We we've seen you know private equity firms Mm -hmm. like Vista, as they were seeing it all the time now, which is great. So so more capital in that way is great. The thing I caution, I tell my GPS this all the time, you know, you've got to worry about the clientele effect, and what I mean by that is. Who is coming into your round and what are your, their return expectations? And I don't think a lot of people are very thoughtful about that. And I don't think they realize that when Fidelity comes into a round, their return hurdle is a lot lower than yours, Mr. Seeds or Miss Seed Stage Fund. And as a result, you know, that you need to calibrate that because every dollar demands a return, but some people's dollars demand a larger return and mine demand a really big
0: stinking return. <laughs> yes. So maybe we'll just close with. Your work, the open LP movement. Um, what have you guys been, been trying to do? Where can we expect it to go?
2: Where do we want it to go? It's a great question. Can I tell the origin story? Yes. Please. So the origin stories, I think it was probably at the diner in, like the creamery in Palo Alto, cause you have been known to be able to find Chris and I there on occasion. Um, and we were talking about how people want to know what LPs have to say, apparently, cause as Chris said, there's a lot of gossip to be had, but we were thinking probably slightly more benevolently and the level of like the opacity in the system. I was opening up between entrepreneurs and VCs thanks to all the blogging and all that. So Chris said – and I want to give credit where credit's due. We should have a hashtag so people could follow it on Twitter. And then we were ideating around it and I had a team that could help me work on us. And then we put together a website and a URL so there could be an open LP. And then we went through to our friends that were LPs that do blog and that do tweet and just collected. So it's you can go to the website and it just is a collection of where people have put material somewhere else. Um, cause a lot of LPs are registered investment advisors. So the SEC cares how you talk and when you talk. So you have to make it a compliant platform. And then for those folks like Chris that tweet a lot, there's a hashtag and then people can follow it. But, and so those are the mechanics. But the idea really was to increase the transparency throughout the ecosystem because, and again, our perspective is the LP world is a relevant point of intersection. And it hadn't been super transparent. And this doesn't mean violation of confidentiality agreements. (laughs) It means sharing basic information of how does the whole 360 of capital flow. So we just wanted to do that for the industry. And it seemed to be pretty, seems to have gone well. And it's actually one of our 2019 questions is what do we do next? So I don't know, what do you want to do? Podcast. podcast, <laughs> I love it. The- <laughs> TV show.
0: Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think Beezer's spot on, like transparency is, is key. And for me, it was like a, almost a little bit more commercial, not commercial, uh what's the word I'm looking for? Practical, because the number of GPs that come in and start pitching me and just start blasting away – And have no idea, you know, what I want or to hear about or what I need is amazing. And, you know, like rule number one when you're making a sale is like know your customer. And so I was pushing back on this guy because he came in and just started plathering on. I'm like, you have no idea about, you know, what I'm interested in or whatever. And he was like, well, how would I? And I'm like, well, I blog, right? Like and tweet. So you can pick that up. But, you know, but it's not about me. It was about kind of, you know, broadening the the perspective to actually – to spur better conversations, because we spend so much time, you know, kind of bullshitting in each other's directions. Let's I actually. You were going to
2: say educating, but okay. <laughs> no, no. Potato, potato. No, no, no that's right. <laughs> but no, but it's true. Like I, we can spend a lot of time educating slash bullshitting about how the industry works because it's super hard. Like I had a friend today who was like, I want to talk to family offices. Where do I go to find out about them? And I was like, "Mm, like not my forte. But here's somebody who's in a family office who's happy to talk to you about the ecosystem. And it's that's why OpenLP is there. The big question is do you create something that people can self-publish to? That's sort of the open-ended question because the idea is to get more and more people sharing. And there's a lot of good VCs that write like are basically LP perspectives or how do you do X, Y, and Z and like pull all this stuff in so that folks have a resource.
0: Awesome. Beezer, Chris, this has been a great episode. Thank you for coming on and educating our audience. If you For people who want more, follow them on Twitter, read their blogs. Guys, thank you so much for for the work that you do. Thank Thank you. you.